Welcome to Maximize Your Influence, your resource for the top persuasion, influence, and negotiation techniques that will help you maximize your success in life and business. And now, here are your hosts, Kurt Mortensen and Steve Olson. Welcome to Maximize Your Influence. I am Steve Olson, and I have Kurt Mortensen here recording with me late on Labor Day evening. We're both feeling the barbecue drag, but as life would have it, uh, this was the only time we could record this week. I think, Kurt, you've been pretty busy. Did you have to go to New York City, or where was it you went last week? No, not that far. I was in Valencia, California. I had to think about it for a second, near uh, just north of LAX. That's where Magic Mountain is, for those who don't know. But went up there and had to endure lots of traffic. Didn't get any good food, and it was just not one of my best performances. <laughs> hey, now, I, I grew up sort of in Valencia when I was a kid. A, Don't hate on Valencia. No, just, it wasn't Valencia. It was me because it was one of those things where I had two alarms. None of them went off. Luckily, I woke up, and then I was making it there. I was going to make it there by 9, and the phone call came. It's 8.30. Where are you? <laughs> so there was <laughs> some miscommunication. And when I got there... I thought it was on negotiation. They told me it was on influence without authority. So, yeah. But they were happy. Things turned out. It just had a rough start for me. That is a rough start. <laughs> yeah. It's like, whoo, send me home now. <laughs> I've, I've mentioned on the show before that there's a company that contracts with me to go teach uh, classes about real estate investing. And we like to joke that if nobody calls the office about your class, everything went just fine. Right. <laughs> as long as the office doesn't hear from anybody, then you're good. And yeah, I had the same thing happen. This guy was calling the office. Where is he? Where is he? And he said, this doesn't start till nine o'clock. He's doing this at 730. And oh, I kind of let him have it on the break. I said, hey, you know, you can reach out to me personally, but uh, you're the one that got the time wrong. <laughs> It's like the people that show up at 6 a.m. for registration. It's like, starts at 9. We're not quite ready for you. <laughs> you get those. You come in the room just to make sure they got everything set up. It's 6.30, and there's a guy sitting on the front row. Enjoy That's your right. next two and a half hours, pal. They're going to get their front seat or else. <laughs> Some people are early birds, right? Yeah, I'm a backseat guy myself, so I never really understood that. But they were getting up two and a half hours. Get that front seat. To get their money's worth, but I think the money's the same worth the first row or the third row, but I don't know. I think there's a lot of studies and urban legends about front row students versus back row students. Why do you think you like to sit on the back row? I'm curious, because I'm a back row guy too. (laughs) I think it's social conditioning from my school days where I wanted to sleep. I did want to get called on, and I didn't want to take notes, and I just wanted to kind of blend in. That, too, and not get into trouble because I was a little class clown at times, and it was easier from the back row than the front row to kind of get some laughs. Yeah, a teacher had to really have a good arm. Yeah, it's true. That is true. Yeah. Okay, well, this is pretty deep stuff on a late evening on Labor Day. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, it is. I took the kids to the zoo today. (laughs) Oh, what? Yeah, it was a cool day, and it's great. Actually, all the animals cared. They're running around, playing Usually you go to the zoo in the summer and you can see the tiger clear in the back corner underneath a tree curled up. You know, they don't do anything, but yeah, it was pretty good today. That's about all we got. That's about as exciting as a week that we have for the listeners. Yeah, that much going on. Just a little of this, a little of that. Although you could take them to the Singapore Zoo where the wild animals just kind of roam free. <laughs> it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Ooh. Reach out and touch the kangaroos. You're actually 
we were walking and there was this big splat and there was an orangutan just hanging out above us that just nearly missed us. So I think I like the uh, U.S. zoos a little bit better, a little safer. I was about to ask you what splat and right as I was going to say it, I realized, <laughs> ah, ah okay. yeah, it was that like, did, did that just happen? That, that just happened. <laughs> that almost got me. Sometimes I feel like I have the same maturity of a, an orangutan. <laughs> there you go. I, I, I'm able uh, to refrain in case listeners are wondering. I don't actually carry go. through. Well, that's your slogan, smarter than orangutan. Nicest thing you ever said to me. Thanks for that. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so we've, we've often talked on the show about deception and lying and dishonesty, and it, it's a very valuable skill to at least be able to tell when somebody's not totally playing straight with you. And I think a lot of us are actually pretty good at it and may not even know that uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, talks about how we're able to pick up information in a very short period of time through lots of very small variables. But my understanding is, and you are going to have to queue up the Urkel before you get into this, is that we've got an article here about a new approach to detecting lying. I want to hear what you think about it. All right. Here's your Urkel. (laughs) All right. Let's get into this article from the Journal of Experimental Psychology. Study of the United Kingdom. Talking about there's a new approach here. Uh, And the new approach suggests we focus on a single cue. Because a lot of training will teach you to look at 20, 30, 40 different things. And it's like personality. Sometimes it gets too overwhelming. And so as Dr. Chris Street and uh, I think Rick Newart, PhD, did a little study. They heard people in London to persuade people that were passing by to be interviewed in this documentary on, on tourism. And they were told by research assistants placed outside the studio that the filmmakers were running out of time and asked if they would uh, describe a genuine travel experience about a place they had not been. So they basically asked them to lie. And they were just kind of looking at them, and they took these, and they showed different people. So the standard approach is they tap into the unconscious, and they use the indirect lie detection method. Bottom line, this is what they found out, is that we often think that nonverbal behavior when we think of deception, right? Oh, wow, they're moving their hands more. They touch their face, a few other things. But it would be better to focus on the content of the tale people are selling us and asking if it is consistent with other facts that we know. So what they're saying is nonverbal behavior you could tell, but if you could just focus on maybe on their facts, if you could focus on their, we talked about mental bandwidth on the show before, are they putting in too many details or the too few details? If we just focus on that, what they found when people were lying and they'd show these videos to other people, that that was actually easier for people to find out that people were lying than looking at all these nonverbals and all these other factors that we've been trained to do. Well, there you go. We're, we're just better at it if we make it more simple, then. That's the gist of it. Yeah, simplify it. Because, yeah, well, even with nonverbal, you could go, okay, this is what the arms do. This is what the face does. This is what your legs do. This is what the body does. This is, <laughs> And it can be overwhelming at times, but you can just focus just on the verbal parts. I mean, even the, the vocal fillers is one that I would add because when people increase their vocal fillers, their ums and their ers, that's also an indicator of deception. And so that might be easier for you to work with your teenagers or your negotiations to find out that they're actually trying to deceive you. Yeah. I was thinking about this yesterday because my daughter uh, has been having a little bit of problem with with lying. And I I mentioned this on the show before. We've kind of got through that phase with daughter one and now daughter two is really (laughs) into it. And we can really tell. And I was trying to come up with some penalties for lying and you know, I'm going to stop this behavior and things like that. But I was kind of thinking how funny it is that there's nothing better in lie detection than a baseline. Because that's why parents can tell that when their kids are full of it, 
right? Because you have the best baseline in the universe. You've known that person ever since they were born. And so you can tell, right? There is no real substitute for a baseline. But if you're going to go beyond that, then what Kurt is telling you here today is pretty solid stuff. Yeah. And baseline is important. It's true. Even in negotiation, let's just talk about something that's not stressful, weather, kids. Well, maybe not kids because they can be stressful, but sports. But finding that baseline, that's again, you're right. That's why parents are so good because all of a sudden they're like, wait a minute, this is a different person. And you know right away that they are lying. Yep. Exactly right. All right. Cool. So. As we continue forward in our Maximize Your Influence journey here, I want to remind everybody to follow us on Twitter at InfluenceMax and like us on Facebook. If you want to get more serious about becoming a good persuader, good influencer, go to universityofpersuasion.com. You've got a bunch of different options there. That's why we do the show, so that eventually you end up there. And we've got some good free courses there, some other things that you could do to really get in-depth details on a daily basis and really, really improve. Because as we've maintained here on the show a lot, if you can add just a couple of techniques, even a year, to your persuasion arsenal, you are going to make more money. You are going to have more success. That's the end of the shameless plug for today. As you can tell, it's hard to do them with a ton of energy late on Labor Day <laughs> evening. <laughs> it's just key. Get more tools, make more money, be more successful. That's it. It's, it's, it's true, guys. It's true. I mean, if you if you want to get better at anything, learn from professionals. Take the time to do it. If it's a casual hobby, like golf is for me, then you just never get better, and that's okay if that's all you want to do. But if I really wanted to get better at golf, I would just go take lessons. <laughs> but I don't. So today, we wanted to give you three quick tips that you can use on your next persuasive encounter, whether that be a presentation for a company, a meeting with your boss, hitting on somebody at a bar. <laughs> oh, there you yeah, go. You're in trouble for that yeah, one. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> up to you. I mean, I, I can't make that call for you, listeners, but I think that connectivity is very, very key, and we tend to forget. We tend to forget there are some basic principles to apply, and they need to be made habitual. That's why I just went on the awkward segue into the University of Persuasion promo. But on connectivity here, three quick tips on how we can build better rapport next time you're going to persuade somebody. And I challenge you to apply one of these next time you're going to do that and let us know how it goes at MaximizeYourInfluence at gmail.com. So, Kurt, what is tip number one for better rapport? Tip number one, and a lot of people don't think about, is the eyes. You know, we've heard the eyes being the window of the soul. You have to have eye contact and... A lot of people blow it here, but charismatic people, when I was doing my research for Laws of Charisma, there's something about their eyes and their eye contact, and it's not something that makes people feel weird. It's something that's very important to understand. For example, charismatic people, when they're trying to connect with someone, they're not going to wear sunglasses. That generates a lot of distrust. The avoidance of eye contact shows lack of confidence. Less than 50% of eye contact shows be someone being insincere and distant. People are like, well, what's the amount? Well... You're probably looking at 70 80% of the time, and that's going to vary by culture and by person. For example, when you're getting increased eye contact, it's showing that you're starting to develop rapport. And it's interesting, if you're looking at their left eye, then you switch to the right eye, they switch too, that's an indication that you've created rapport. You might see the pupils dilate. That shows interest in that someone's receptive. And we have to be careful here to look at people 100% of the time. Because if you're looking at someone 100% of the time, it either means you're falling in love, and that's probably not something you want in the persuasion process. Unless, like you said before, you're at the bar. In fact, interesting thing about the eyes, they did a study with a man and woman about the same age, 
And they had them sit down, knee to knee, look at each other's eyes, constant contact, and they start having amorous feelings towards each other. So yeah. try that at the workplace. See where it goes. Or at the bar. <laughs> or at the bar. Yeah. Say, I want to do a little experiment with you if there's somebody that you want to get to know. But eyes are powerful. They can help you. They hurt you. A lot of people think, yeah, I looked at them. But no, whether it's detecting deception or that connection or developing rapport or knowing if you've developed rapport, eyes are powerful and people don't spend enough time thinking about it. Sometimes they say, well, duh, but this is a deep science. I mean, detecting deception, eye movement, how you're recalling thoughts with your brain that all is directly wired into your eyes. Well, like you've said, they're the windows to the soul. And you can certainly tell, even if somebody is trained, they're making eye contact with you when they're laughing or they're responding. The face, like we've kind of said on deception, it runs a lot of mental bandwidth to be deceptive like that. And it seems that the one place that it can't totally overtake is the eyes. We can do fake smiles, we can do fake motions with our body, but the eyes are the, are the ones that are the dead giveaway. Right, that's the body, all that mental bandwidth doesn't quite get to the eyes. That's the one thing we really can't falsify is the eyes a lot of times. And in fact, that's one of the things for detecting deception is a change in eye contact. Some people will look at you more and almost stare you down, and some people won't look at you at all. But there is a change in eye contact. It's not something that we can really control. Baseline, baby. Very, mm -hmm. very reliable. Go for the baseline. Yep, yep. Okay, cool. What is rapport tip number two? Oh, like this one. This one's humor. Spent a lot of time researching humor and its correlation with persuasion and rapport and connectivity. And yes, if you can get someone to laugh with you, they like you better. They're more open to your ideas. You create rapport. Now, people say, well, I'm not a stand-up comedian. Well, that might be true, but a couple things with humor. First of all, you have to be careful with your humor up front. People are either going to laugh with you or laugh at you. <laughs> There's really no in-between. Because if you're a humor bombs and it's no good... It's not going to help your rapport. But you can create good humor, get people to smile, get people even to laugh on the inside. If you could create an environment that's more positive, that people can laugh, it makes the biggest difference in the world and creates rapport. And you'll say, well, what do I do? I'm not funny. I don't feel funny. Well, you can borrow humor. Because studies show that, again, humor not only increases rapport, but they help your confidence as a presenter, as a speaker, as a persuader, because it's always nice when somebody laughs at your jokes or your stories or things that you're saying. But it just changes the environment, the demeanor, especially when there's a lot of distrust. So borrow humor. You can do that. Anybody can do that. Is it a comic from the Internet? Is it a YouTube video? Is it a story from a coworker? Hey, throw in one of your embarrassing moments. And people tend to hesitate to do that. But I'm telling you, audiences and people love embarrassing moments they love them and it connects you they smile they laugh but there's a connection there because i think a they're glad it's not them <laughs> mm -hmm. and b you have to see more human to them and so when you can really look at humor or do some improv training or find some comics or even if it's in the workplace and you have a coworker that's funny, have them come in and start off with a joke or start off with a story. Get that smile. Get that laugh. And, and don't panic if your audience doesn't laugh out loud. Some are laughing on the inside. They might be a little smile. But that is the biggest thing you can do to create the environment, to develop rapport, to get people to like you. People want to be around optimistic people, people that are funny, that make them feel good. And I've seen this when interviewing people. Well, why'd you go with that sales without them? Well, they make me smile. They make me laugh. They make me feel good. They have a great demeanor. They're optimistic. Those are all traits and characteristics of someone that knows how to connect with people and knows how to really create that rapport. I think that most, the entry-level humor, 
if you're the kind of person that, that thinks you're not funny or that if you're going to tell a joke, you're just not going to pull it off and you're going to be just kind of pitiful. The entry-level humor is the self-deprecating kind where you poke fun at yourself. And at a very minimum, it's going to make you more relatable, even if it's not super funny, right? Everybody's afraid of the slick sales guy that's going to come in, be super funny, smooth, charismatic, and take your wallet. You didn't even know what happened, right? (laughs) But if you can open up with something self-deprecating like that, at a minimum, it lowers the guard and they say, this guy's a moron. He's not going to take my wallet, (laughs) right? And that guard goes way down then. In fact, you've made the point on the show many times that the best persuaders actually tend to be introverts. And I think much of that, too, is, well, of course, the listening, but they're less threatening. Yeah, and there's an old approach called the Columbo approach. It's a TV show before our time, I think, but it was a, a bumbling detective asked stupid questions, would trip and spill stuff and do strange things, but he would always get the robber, always get the murderer, because people would put their guard down and think, they don't know anything, and this didn't happen, and... And I remember we were doing some training or something with lawyers, and we're like, oh, wow, they're doing the Columbo thing. But then we realized they weren't smart at all. But that's a whole other story. <laughs> that's actually what I was going <laughs> to say. They were just billing. They were just getting billable Yeah, they were hours. just billings, and they weren't that smart. And like, I, was, I was waiting for the, the zinger, that approach. They're out to get you. I'm like, it never happened. I'm like, oh, well, they truly are Columbos. <laughs> they weren't acting it. They were living it. <laughs> it's a Columbo. He's done with his stupid line of questioning. You're like, this guy is so not prepared. And you're expecting when they leave, oh, and one more thing, right? <laughs> no. Oh, no, here comes the dagger. We've all dealt with those people. There is no dagger. The person was just stupid. <laughs> That's right. So you keep your guard up, but you never know at the end. They truly could be Columbo. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, what's tip number three on rapport? Tip number three, and probably the most important, if you look at knowing when you have created rapport and, and increasing the speed to rapport is from NLP fame or neurolinguistic programming, mirror and matching. That is a key concept. This is something that happens naturally with people when they've developed rapport. They start mirroring and matching each other. Let me give you some examples. For example, a college professor wanted to see, well, wait a minute, does this truly work? She'd go to a restaurant multiple times, pick someone about 10 feet away, and kind of on their peripheral vision a little bit, and take a bite at the same time, take a drink at the same time, cut their food at the same time, wipe their face at the same time, and Ultimately, the person would come over and say, do I know you? You seem very familiar to me. <laughs> and that's something that happens naturally. You watch two people at a party that are connected. Their posture is the same. Their breathing rates, if you can tell, have synchronized. Their energy levels will take a drink at the same time. And they don't even know this is happening. Mm-hmm. So we start mirroring people that we like, that we've developed rapport with. And you can do this to accelerate rapport when you go into a negotiation, when you go into someone's office. You could do that, not mimic. If you sit back right when they sit back, you're going to freak them out, right? It's going to be a challenge. But it it could be done in two and three seconds, and it doesn't have to do with everything that they do. But if they lean back, you slowly lean back. If they cross their arms, maybe you just fold your arms a little lower. I was working with somebody that just couldn't connect with the CEO because he'd come in and sit down. The CEO would stand up and start pacing in front of the windows. I go, well, what do you do with that? And I said, well... I told him, well, you probably should stand up and you know hold his hand and pace with him, and he didn't like that idea. <laughs> <laughs> so don't try that at home or at the office. What I recommend is just don't sit down. It doesn't have to be exactly the same, but standing up while he's pacing is less than a disconnect than sitting down. Sure. Right? Sure. And, so, and it's not just gestures. It's also energy levels. If you walk into someone's office Monday morning, you're like, hey, it's a great day. You call the depression hotline, and they're like, hey, it's awesome. Thanks for calling mm-hmm. It would be a disconnect for people. 
So you got to mirror energy. And if they keep using the same word over and over again, maybe you want to use it a few times. Maybe it's their gestures. Maybe it's the way they're sitting. All these things come into play. And don't let this make you nervous. This is part of reality of rapport. And you might even move and see if they move with you. Then you know you've created rapport. This is real. Try it at home. You'll see this works. You're accelerating what's naturally going to happen anyway when you've developed rapport. You're just speeding it up. And be aware of that. We're so concerned about what to say next that we're not really reading the body language or learning how to connect rapport. And people just like you more because you seem more similar to them because your gestures, your energy, the words you use, even your accent is closer to theirs. I'm not saying you should try to mimic somebody's southern accent. I mean, if you're good at that, I know I have a good friend from Texas that automatically goes into that Texas draw because he's from there and it works really well. But it, uh, it's just things that you can do to mirror and match them will go a long way. And number one, developing rapport and accelerating that. But also you can tell when you gesture and they follow you along that they develop rapport because it happens subconsciously. Excellent. Excellent. Okay, so the three tips, eye contact, humor, and mirror and match. So we had kind of issued a challenge to the listeners to pick one of those and use it. Whichever one you're not using effectively or that you feel like you could do better at, use it next time you need to persuade somebody and let us know how it goes. Well, let me add this. Let me challenge the listeners to do this. Do it before you need it, meaning... Practice at the mall. Practice at a family reunion. Pick someone that you just don't like at a family reunion or doesn't like you. Get them to like you. Develop rapport. Do it in situations where it's not stressful and you need to persuade somebody. Do it at the Little League game with your kids. Just pick things. I want to get that person to like me and practice your people skills. Practice your rapport. Practice your mirror matching. Then it becomes natural to you. If you just turn it on only when you're negotiating, persuading, you'll get it eventually, but not as fast as just doing it all the time. Yeah, you do have to rehearse it. Um, and it can't seem so canned. It has to seem natural, right? I, I've got a couple of jokes that I use in my presentations, and I can make it come off like it's off the cuff and it's natural and people love it. Uh, the problem is, is when you start repeating it <laughs> with the same prospects, right? So, <laughs> exactly. I don't know, keep a spreadsheet or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. That's true. And listen to the people before you because if they sell the same joke you tell it, yours going to not work so well awful i have seen that happen oh the carnage oh it was and it's never on purpose you feel so bad for the person but uh, it's real oh yeah there is carnage (laughs) (laughs) well okay kurt what i need you to do is cue up the ninja and the blunder everybody's been hearing about the EpiPen, right if you have some kind of a serious allergy that you're and you're having a, a reaction to that you can take a shot of, I might slaughter it, epinephrine or epinephrine or something like that. Short is the EpiPen. It's that uh, shot you can take in the thigh that immediately starts to counteract an allergic reaction. And the cost of the EpiPen has gone up crazy, crazy amounts. And we are free market capitalists here at Maximize Your Influence. We, we like it if you can expand profit margins and make more money. And I think that's the ninja side of this, right? Maybe you see an opportunity for, for, maybe you can bill more insurance or something like that. The blunder side of it is when Congress calls you in front of a hearing, it probably <laughs> wasn't handled properly. Yeah. yeah. So here, here's a, a, a quick excerpt from the article. A company called Mylon, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, acquired EpiPen. But here it says, Mylon has raised the cost of an EpiPen 2-pack 
to $608, up from the around $100 product cost when the company acquired the patent from Merck in 2007. Representative Jason Chaffetz and Elijah Cummings, the top Republican and Democrat on the House Oversight Committee, on Tuesday sent a letter to the company's CEO seeking a non-public briefing by September 6. I would believe, knowing these committees, that they want them to just come in and share information with them and then blast them at a committee hearing, said a person with knowledge of congressional investigations who asked for an anonymity to speak freely. The EpiPen people over at Mylon are definitely having to spin this as it's a congressional witch hunt, which it might well be. They, you know, maybe they've got the right to do this, but you know, there's increasing pricing in this world with Twitter and where everything is public almost instantly. It's been a huge, huge uproar for everybody, and now you're going in front of Congress. I'm not saying I would know how to navigate this any better. You know, I've got the benefit of hindsight here. But if you work over at Mylon and you're involved in that price increase, you got to wonder, oh, man, was this worth it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the business side of it is like, hey, they spent, what, probably hundreds of millions of dollars for this thing, right? they got to get their money back. they got to put it back to research and a few other things. I think that's what a lot of people don't understand about pharmaceuticals is, yeah, it might only cost them 10 cents, but they spent a billion dollars creating it. They got to get their money back. And the other side of me is like, well, yeah, when you increase, I think the number was 671% increase in price. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. When you do that, people are going to freak out because they depend on that. And that was probably the biggest blunder is if you're going to do something like this, it's got to be gradual. There's a, a concept in persuasion called JND, which is just noticeable difference to where we don't really notice when gas goes up from two dollars and 71 cents to two dollars and 78 cents you really don't notice but when it goes from 275 to 301 and breaks that threshold we notice and we want it to be more like the sunset just a gradual thing that we really don't notice just like yogurt cups you know they're concave at the bottom mm -hmm. we can't tell the difference between 2.4 ounces and 2.3 ounces we can't tell if the cake mixes i don't know if you notice are getting smaller the package is the same size but the amount the cakes are getting smaller and so they're doing it in a way where we don't notice. And, wow, when you go up over 600%, imagine if gas did that or other things did that. I, I, mean, I understand needing a profit and to get your money back. And I understand that. But, A, you're dealing with someone who's dependent on your product that, uh, again, like you said, has access to social media. But, yeah, you've got to do that more in a gradual way because that created an uproar, as everyone knows. So that would definitely be the blunder part. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's some kind of a Machiavellian CEO or, or marketing director that basically says, oh, hey, we're holding all the cards here. We've got the patent, and these people have to have our product. We've got them over a barrel. Uh, 40, 50 years ago, when there was uh, you know, a small newspaper in every town in a mostly rural country, and where news didn't move around nearly like it does today, you might have been able to get away with that. And I'm not saying that, uh, I'm not speaking as to the morality of such a decision, but now you can't do that anymore. We're not sitting here preaching about what kind of cost it should have been, but we do know, well, it should have been somewhere short of a congressional hearing. There was the public uproar, there's that social validation, things that are happening, you gotta be careful, especially with being that extreme. I think you need to be more gradual with the JND or just noticeable difference. And we're probably not doing justice to the details and why the cost went up. But the point is, from a marketing and a PR perspective, ugh. Yeah. They lost to the court of public opinion. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know what this says about me, but because, you know, Congress has definitely dragged some dirtbags before them 
to have hearings. Uh, but no matter who gets dragged in front of Congress for these hearings, I do feel bad for them because they're just basically a pinata, <laughs> right? <laughs> the Congress is just there to get points. Everybody just sits up and then beats up on them for two hours and they just got to take it. Oh, man. That's true. That's true because if this didn't go viral, they wouldn't be in front of Congress. They wouldn't have cared. No, no. Congress is doing it for the points, all right? Oh, yeah. Those guys aren't right. waking up every day going, oh. What about my constituents in the EpiPen? We gotta solve this. Nah, nah this is we got an election. We gotta act like we care. <laughs> These people vote for me so I can pretend to care. That's right. Yeah, I gotta pretend to care for a little bit, so I'm gonna beat somebody up and didn't break any laws, but I'm gonna beat them up, and everyone's gonna see that I care. Exactly. <laughs> Maybe they should be the blunders of the week. Yeah, yeah, unofficial blunder of the week. I think that they just kind of have a running title. That. Yeah, I think that's a gift. Yeah, <laughs> we ought to announce it every week now. The blunder of the year, blunder of the century. <laughs> Politicians. <laughs> it's, uh... All right. Well, hey, look at that. Late on Labor Day evening, both of us firing at just shy of 50%, I think. <laughs> 42, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, everybody, we want to thank you for listening. We gave you some great tips on rapport for your next presentation and talk smack about some politicians. So, that has been episode 156. We do appreciate listening, and we'll catch you next week on another episode of Maximize Your Influence. Catch you next week. Persuade with power.